You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about the right of national self-determination as a principle that socialists uh, should uphold. And we'll be going back to look at debates that Lenin had with Luxembourg and others 100 years ago over this topic. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. Today is November 29th. 2022, we're going to be talking about uh, the concept of national self-determination, especially in the context of the war in Ukraine. And uh, we're going to be contextualizing this conversation, the concept of national self-determination, by first looking at what Lenin wrote about the concept back even uh, before 1917 in the context of debates that Lenin was having with other people in the Bolshevik Party, as well as Rosa Luxemburg around the issue of national self-determination. Andrew has been working on this issue and has kind of written a a set of notes that we're going to be discussing and and kind of laying out for everyone today. But we should definitely also take a little space here to thank Teresa Henry, who provided some extremely valuable research and assistance to us and putting together uh, the presentation for today's podcast. Right. Very much to, to, to thank her. Very valuable research. One thing I wanted to say is one of the things that I've been concerned with is, you know, Lenin in his day faced a lot of detractors, opponents of applying the principle of national self-determination as we do today. One thing that is different today that he didn't face, that we do, and, and I'm, I'm concerned with, is the whole issue of campism, the people who claim that there's an imperialist camp and then everybody else who's the anti-imperialist camp, that's the way they look at the world and and make their political judgments on the basis of it. He didn't have to face that in his day. So I wanted to look at how the the whole issue of campism relates to what he was calling uh, imperialist economism. One thing we should probably establish from the start is why we're going back to talk about what Lenin was writing about national self-determination. A little, little over 100 years ago. The reason is that Lenin was involved with a series of back and forth and debates with people like Bukharin and Pyatikov and Rosa Luxemburg on this issue. And in the course of that debate, he did a lot of work developing the idea of national self-determination as a principle that socialists um, should get behind, should uh, defend and fight for. So looking back to the origin of this debate, this debate, we can see a lot of continuity with current debates around the war in Ukraine. Um, but we should make clear that we're, this is not a discussion about actual Soviet policy under Lenin in Ukraine. That's a whole different topic that's complicated. And uh, so this is purely like on the issue, on the realm of like theoretical development of an idea and going back to like the beginning of, of the debates around this idea. 
Yeah, we're concerned with today and with looking at the past to help us understand our problems today. So because we don't need to reinvent the wheel, we're, we're you know, not reinventing the wheel. Uh, I mean, we would be well equipped, I think, to discuss the Soviet policies here or there or whatever. We're not equipped to do so because... That's not what we're focusing on. So let's start off talking about these debates Lenin was was having. I guess maybe we should, from the start, just give a overview of this historical period. This is the era of imperialism, and Lenin's been writing about imperialism, and the issue of how fights for national self-determination can be viewed within the context of imperial capitalism is like the the basic historical situation that people are dealing with. Right. This was, this was a long, long established principle of, of support of the right of national self-determination. But during the period that we're, we're looking at here, where he starts to coin the term imperialist economism and so forth, this is 1916. It's smack in the middle of the World War, World War One. So for Lenin, I mean, this is no longer defense of a, of a right just as, okay, you know, we support the, the right of nations to secede. It became very concrete for him that this was key to the battle against imperialism and the, uh, the, the, the battle for social revolution. I mean, he talked about national liberation struggles as one of the bacilli, one of the things that can stimulate the proletarians to come onto the scene and make the, the social revolution, which, you know, a, a national liberation struggle isn't going to make a world social revolution, but it can spur uh, and encourage the whole process. So he, he was very much concerned with this dialectic of transforming imperialist domination, world war, capitulation of official Marxism, turning that around and how it can be turned around. And so, I mean, very famously, uh, he said a little bit later, you know, turn the imperialist war into a civil war. It's the same kind of dialectical process of, of transformation, of inversion that, that he's thinking of here in the context of, of imperialism in war and uh, the, the forces that are against it. You mentioned this term imperialist economism. We're going to start off with a discussion of that term. This is a term that might seem a little strange, but this is a term that Lenin created to characterize his opponents in the debate. It's a term that is actually like an analogy. He's making an analogy to a problem with economistic ideas, using that analogy of economism to characterize the people who are critics of national self-determination. Can you give us, Andrew, like your rundown of, of what he's doing with this term? Yeah, it's it's kind of difficult, a little bit obscure. He At the turn of the century, you know, around 1900, a little bit before, a little bit after, there was a tendency within Russian Marxism that were known as the economists. Their thought was called economism. They rejected political struggles for democratic rights and reforms within Russia was like, that's not what we should be concerned with. What we, you know, the Marxists should be concerned with is trade union struggles around economic demands only. So because they were saying, let's focus on economic demands only, they were called e economists. Lenin is not using the term to mean that, and he's not using it to mean economism like overemphasis on economic factors. What he's saying is that there's something 
in the thinking of the people who are, you know, in, in his party, Bukharin, uh, Piatikov, people who are opposing the principle of national self-determination or ap- applying it. There's something in the way that they are thinking that is similar to the way the old economists at the turn of the century were thinking. So he's making a, an analogy concerning the method of their reasoning. So it's not that, that what they say about national self-determination has anything to do with economic demands as such. It, it really has to do with, well, here's how he, he, he put it. He says, capitalism has triumphed. Therefore, there is no need to bother with political problems. The old economists reasoned in 1894 to 1901, falling into rejection of the political struggle in Russia. Imperialism has triumphed, therefore there is no need to bother with the problems of political democracy, reason the present-day imperialist economists. And Lenin was saying national self-determination is a problem of political democracy, and so he was saying just like they rejected involvement in that issue, the economists did rejection of political struggle, these people are rejecting concern with the problems of political democracy. Why? Because in the one case, capitalism has triumphed, and in the current case, because imperialism has triumphed. That was the analogy. It's not a perfect analogy because, and Lenin was quite aware that it wasn't a perfect analogy, but he he was saying, okay, you know, we're seeing a similar kind of problem here, but the people that he was charging with imperialist economism, they didn't only say there's no need to bother with struggles for national self-determination. The crux of their position was that national self-determination is not possible or not achievable in an epoch of imperialism. And we see some of the same stuff today. Rosa Luxemburg, you know, had had other uh, issues with national self-determination, but she also basically said that national self-determination is... just not achievable in uh, an epoch of imperialism. In, in the Junius pamphlet that she wrote, she used the pseudonym Junius, she said, national wars are no longer possible in the epoch of unbridled imperialism. National interests serve only as an instrument of deception uh, in order to place the working masses at the service of their mortal enemy, imperialism. And Lenin was, was very strongly against that and said, among these national wars are wars of national liberation. And so when you make this blanket statement about national wars and you say it's impossible, you're implicitly saying national liberation isn't possible, but it is. So that's what Lenin and his opponents were saying uh, 100 years ago or more. But what is that? how does that relate to what's going on today with debates over national self-determination, specifically around Ukraine. Um, Listeners will know that we've discussed this issue several times. We've had several episodes criticizing Noam Chomsky and his position against Ukrainian national self-determination. We have had an episode discussing MHI's editorial on the war in Ukraine in which we had put forth a defense of the principle of national self-determination in the context of the current war in Ukraine. But you know, for those who haven't you know, listened to our previous stuff or just as a review, how is this imperialist economism that Lenin's criticizing intellectually related to what, what we're seeing today amongst the opponents of uh, national self-determination today? Like Lenin said back then, the crux of everything 
that the opponents of national self-determination is saying, the crux of everything they say is that national self-determination can't be achieved under imperialism or can't be achieved under capitalism. That central point reappears in a big way today, you know, with some modifications. I mean, not necessarily everybody makes a blanket statement that it's, it's not achievable, but you get arguments that, you know, it's not achievable in Ukraine, it's not achievable under capitalism, etc. Et, et For instance, there's Chomsky. And there's followers of Rosa Luxemburg are still making the argument that there's no such thing as national self-determination under capitalism. MHI received a comment on our editorial uh, where a follower of Luxembourg said, as far as I'm concerned, this national self-determination bullshit was settled over 100 years ago. Uh, in the context of capitalism, no state can deliver freedom, not even the Ukrainian one, which is... I mean, it's a it's a baited switch because what people mean by national self-determination, who support the right and so forth, it, it's not a state del- del- delivering freedom. But like you get Chomsky, I mean, uh, from the start of Putin's imperialist invasion, he was like, the options that remain are grim. He, I'm quoting him. The least bad is Austrian style neutralization of Ukraine with some federalism within the choices are now reduced to an ugly outcome that rewards Putin for the act of aggression or the strong possibility of terminal war. And he said that like on March 1. Seven weeks later, he said, there's basically two ways for this war to end, a negotiated diplomatic settlement or destruction. And it's not going to be Russia that's destroyed. It's going to be Ukraine. And what he meant by negotiated diplomatic settlement is, again, neutralization of Ukraine, putting off the matter of Crimea, a high level of autonomy for Donbass. Okay, so this is a statement that national self-determination for Ukraine isn't possible. The only possibilities are a terminal war, or Ukraine gets destroyed, or Putin's rewarded for his imperialist invasion by basically decapitating Ukraine, neutralizing it, letting Putin keep Crimea, and, and taking effective control over the, over the Donbass region. Supposedly Chomsky was certain of this because the idea of Ukraine being able to effectively fend off Putin's invasion uh, seemed strategically impossible, I guess. Yeah, there were a lot of bad, real experts, military analysts, and so forth. It's not that they were bad. Their, their, their assessments were just obviously way off. But he repeated that. I mean, but There's also like this implication in Chomsky, maybe not in the quotes you read, but implication that any resistance on the part of Ukraine is just then being used as a tool of U.S. imperialism. So either way. Yeah, this is where we shade into the new stuff, which is this campus imperialist economism. Yeah. It's not like a problem that Lenin faced. Right. So it's sort of like there's no way out. If they fight back against Russia, they're fighting really a proxy war on the half of NATO and the U.S. And so they still don't have real true national self-determination because they're just being used as a proxy. And then he can then characterize any defense of Ukraine's national self-determination as people just encouraging the war and encouraging the killing of Ukrainians and, and the purpose of an inter-imperialist war. Yeah, there, there's a whiff of this campism in, in, in Chomsky's thinking. I wouldn't call him a campist as such, but he's repeatedly said things to the effect of 
the Ukrainians, if they fight back, uh, instead of giving in to Putin's demands, what they're really doing is the bidding of Washington, Biden, the U.S. imperialism. They're fighting a war on its behalf. They're not really fighting on their own behalf. And they're being goaded into this by Washington into a maximalist position, whereas what's really in their interest is this kind of neutralization and, and, and so forth. He's never really afraid to tell people what's in, in their in their interests. But I mean, I'm 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 concerned with you know how, how the hell did Chomsky think with absolute certainty that he knew the future? The interviewer never asked how he knew this or how it could be known. I mean, nobody can know the future, and because you can't know the future, and, and there can be all kinds of unexpected things, and your assessments can be wrong, and the experts uh, uh, that you're relying on and repeating their assessments, they can be wrong. When you're saying this is off the table, this is unachievable. What you're really doing is discouraging the people who are fighting back. You're discouraging solutions, ways out that are emancipatory. You're discouraging support for that. So it's, it's not just like some neutral armchair uh, observation. He's an actor in, in politics. And the, the effect of these overblown pronouncements that things are impossible what it serves is, is, is to discourage the actual fight for national self-determination and thinking that, that would you recognize the obstacles, but you say, okay, given these obstacles, given the superior might and given the nukes of, of Russia, given all this, how can we overcome these problems instead of just say, oh, it's impossible? One thing that the, the assessments were, seemed to be based on that were wrong uh, and that Putin in particular did not anticipate was the massive support for Ukraine, the Ukrainian nation among the people of Ukraine. He, he thought that, that they would roll over and play dead in a matter of weeks, if not, if not days. But that kind of thing, the, the massive support, even in the East, in Ukraine, the massive support in favor of the independence of Ukraine, uh, exhibited by the people of Ukraine, was really a factor that was not anticipated, not seen, that has shaped the, the character of events going forward and turning something that did not seem possible into something that now very much does seem possible. But then there are the actual campists. You know, they say there is the imperialist camp, and that's what they mean, you know, the U.S. and its allies and maybe some client states. And then there's everybody else who are their adversaries. That's the anti-imperialist camp. And just like some people said, ah, capitalism has triumphed. So forget political struggle. Imperialism has triumphed. Forget national self-determination. They say the imperialist camp has triumphed. Therefore, nobody is independent. You don't have your own struggle anymore. You're either on one side or the other. You're either with the imperialist camp or you're part of the anti-imperialist camp. And if you're fighting an adversary of the U.S., if you're fighting Putin, if you're fighting Assad in Syria, then you're not acting on your own behalf. You're acting on their behalf. You're a pawn. You're a client. You're fighting a proxy war, just like you said. So that's their position. And if you want to oppose Ukraine and not say, oh, I'm opposing Ukraine, this is a very helpful go-to position. 
oh, well, they're just fighting a proxy war on behalf of the U.S. I'm against the U.S., therefore I'm not going to support them. That's actually a very common kind of uh, way people go. Listeners who are familiar with campus uh, politics will probably know that they often take it farther than that and that they get involved in some level of denialism around the actual crimes and problems with the so-called anti-imperialist camp. So you get the Putin apologists, the Assad apologists, and so on. Oh, yeah. There's been a good deal of that. I mean, if you want to get yourself involved day-to-day in in propaganda, uh, you can question this thing that this news service said, and you can question the other thing, and you can deny the massacres and all the horrible stuff that's going on, or you can say there's still questions, or this is unconfirmed, and yeah, a lot of that's been going on. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So going back to Lenin, because there was a lot of confusion around this term national self-determination and 
what it meant to have a right of national self-determination. London had to work out precise definition of what these concepts meant. Let's get into what Lenin wrote and see if that's still useful for us today. How did Lenin understand the specifics of this term, national self-determination? Yeah, well, he had to, he had to get very precise because international socialism had a position in favor of national self-determination. The Bolsheviks had a position in favor of national self-determination. And it is what Lenin said but when he gets in, into these debates, he sees that people are playing with the, the concept, they're confusing matters. He says, okay, we've got to be absolutely clear about what we mean, and we have men all along, but to answer these claims that it's unachievable or uh, impossible to achieve national self-determination, we have to basically hold these people's feet to the fire and insist that they talk about what we're talking about. And what we are talking about is a people's or nation's right to have a separate state. In 1914, he had written, and this is in an article called The Right of Nations to Self-Determination. He says, self-determination of nations means the political separation of nations from alien national bodies and the formation of an independent national state. So, I mean, he knew this all along. And he also uses the phrase, the right to existence as a separate state. So what national self-determination has always meant is political independence, political independence, you know, within capitalism. It's not a matter of economic dependence. He was clear about that, but he really felt the need to like return to this, to try to pin down Bukharin to answer Piatikov, to answer Junius, in other words, Luxembourg in 1916. And just to make it clear, it's a political independence, not economic independence. And it, this is all in the context of capitalism, global capitalism, imperialism, economic imperialism. All these things still exist. And, and national self-determination does not change any of those things. Not immediately, but, but it can be a spur to social revolution. The argument that he was being uh, confronted with is imperialism has triumphed everywhere. Small nations just can't be economically independent of imperialism, of finance capital. They're caught up in the web of finance capital. They're subject to its power. And so self-determination is possible. Well, yeah, in, in that sense, that's true. Lenin <laughs> would be the first to agree. But it's like, hey, this isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about the right of nations to secede from other nations, small nations to, to break off, and stuff like the right of Ukraine not to be invaded and, and taken over by, by, by Russia today. That's what's meant by, by, you know, having an independent state. That's what's meant by national self-determination. You know, in the same document back in 1914, he was already debating Rosa Luxemburg on this issue. And, you know, she was making this, this argument that there's no real self-determination, no, you know, economic independence in, in, in an epoch of imperialism. And he's saying, yeah, okay, but that's true of everybody. 
even big nations who that are recognized as independent nations like Russia. You know, he's from Russia and he's saying Russia is not free of uh, the power of international uh, imperialist finance capital. So it's not only little Balkan states that's not economically independent, like no, nobody is, is really economically uh, independent of, of, of finance capital. But this isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about a right of a, of a people to have its own state. And if it doesn't already, to break off and to have that right be recognized. He also makes an analogy to demands for democracy within bourgeois states. He says at one point in criticizing Luxembourg, he, he says that her position, uh, well, this, here's the quote, quote, this is just as intelligent as if someone in discussing the programmatic demand for the supremacy of parliament, i.e. the demand for representative democratic government, in a bourgeois state were to expound the perfectly correct conviction that big capital dominates in a bourgeois country, whatever the regime in it. So in other words, yes, it's true that parliamentary democracy or representative democracy doesn't change the bourgeois character of a bourgeois country, but that doesn't mean that it's not important for socialists to fight for, for, for democratic representation, democratic rights, voting rights, things like that, within the context of a capitalist society. Voting rights. We're still fighting for that. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like uh, under imperialism, there's, there's no economic independence from finance capital. Under capitalism, there's no economic independence from, from capital. You could take this kind of like ultra-left maximalist position that because of that, like nothing matters except an immediate, explicit struggle for communist society, and everything else is just a delusion. And, you know, there's a lot of ultra-left people out there, relatively speaking, too many, who, who think like that. That's, that wasn't the way that Luxembourg thought. I mean, Rosa Luxembourg was a revolutionary. She was opposed to reformism or reformism, but she well understood, and in her, her pamphlet, you know, Reformer Revolution, she said, look, the road to revolution is through reforms, okay? It's through the, the, the struggles for reforms that we, we get the revolutionary struggle. It doesn't, you know, come all at once like a shot out of a pistol. So she understood that, but she just wasn't the most consistent person taking the, the general ideas and seeing how they're relevant to, to national self-determination struggle. But today we get like these ultra-left kind of people who, in, in, in the name of full freedom, no, under capitalism, no state can deliver freedom. So in the name of full freedom, what you do is you say, okay, well, voting rights isn't full freedom. You know, representative democracy is in full freedom. National self-determination is in full freedom. We're for full freedom. So in the name of freedom, you separate yourself from and put yourself in opposition to every actual struggle for freedom that's going on. And that's what happens when your thinking is like playing with abstract opposites instead of being part of this dialectical process of working out how you can transform unfreedom and into freedom. It, it just doesn't make any sense. What I was ju just getting at is how you transform 
you know, unfreedom into freedom. The, the, the process, which is not a shot out of a pistol, the road to revolution is through reforms. The road to world revolution is through national, so, or at least one path to world revolution is through national liberation struggles. So the question is how you can achieve things, how you can take stock of the contradictory situation you face and get somewhere as against those who look at the big picture, capitalism has triumphed, imperialism has triumphed, therefore everything is impossible, except maybe all once struggle shot out of the pistol for complete communism. Whereas uh, Luxembourg is saying you can't get national self-determination, there's no more national wars, Lenin's saying, let's look at this really concretely, because a concrete examination is the only way to go, not some blanket statement and then supposedly deducing everything from some sweeping blanket statement. So um, I think we've dropped the term a couple times, Junius pamphlet, but let's make sure people know what that's a reference to. Junius was a pseudonym used by Luxembourg at some point in a pamphlet she wrote uh, on this issue. Yeah, she was in prison. And I think this was maybe 1915. The formal name of the pamphlet, everybody just calls it the, the, the Junius pamphlet, but... The Crisis of German Social Democracy, 1915. Yeah. That's it. But this was a, 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 a pamphlet that, that Luxembourg wrote. It got smuggled out of prison and got printed for her, her party. And, you know, Lenin got hold of it. He was extremely appreciative of the Junius pamphlet because, I mean, it was staunchly anti-war. It was opposed to the imperialist war. It was opposed to the capitulation of social democracy to the, the imperialist war in Germany, you know, and of course elsewhere. So he really appreciated that because, you know, he was also an anti-war socialist and they were obviously in, in a minority in, in that situation. But still in all, he, he had to say, oh my God, look at what these people are saying and not saying about national self-determination. He didn't know that, that Luxembourg was the author. But he was like, I, you know, I just can't let this pass. What, what Lenin is criticizing is Junius's statement that national wars are no longer possible in the epoch of unbridled imperialism. And first of all, Lenin says that this blanket statement just ignores national movements against imperialism. In other words, national liberation struggles, and there were a lot of them taking place in Ireland and, and, and so forth. When he was uh, writing, he's like, what are you talking about? These don't place the working masses at the service of imperialism. These are anti-imperialist struggles. And then he's looking for some justification by Junius, you know, Luxembourg, as to why national wars are supposedly no longer possible. And the only argument that he could find was that now that the world has been divided among the big imperialist powers, any war that might start on a national basis just gets transformed into an imperialist war involving the interests of one of the imperialist powers or coalitions. So there are no national wars. And that's kind of like what we're seeing among the campus is kind of reminiscent of, of, of that kind of line of argument. And so this idea that all wars just get transformed into imperialist wars, Len says, okay, that's the, the justification that Junius gives, but here's what's wrong with it. And he comes up with like at least six points against it. 
He says, first of all, it's sophistry, sophistical to disregard the difference between a national war and an imperialist war on the grounds that the first could develop into the other. And he says, okay, there are cases where a national war might be highly improbable that it, you know, stays as a national war, but that doesn't make it impossible. Uh, And he says national wars waged against imperialism, you know, national liberation struggles uh, in the colonies and semi-colonies, they're not only, you know, possible, they're not only even probable, they're inevitable. And then he says, okay, and just because of an imperialist power is involved and on the same side as the, the people fighting for national liberation, that in itself doesn't make it like, you know, what we call today a proxy war. He, he said, look at the American War of Independence. The U.S. was against uh, Britain. Uh, it was, you know, at that time, a colony of Britain. Uh, France was on the same side as the Americans. But the the French role was auxiliary. It was still U.S. war of independence was still a war of national liberation. And then he just says, look at the facts. Even in Europe, where all the big powers are thoroughly imperialist, that fact today, 1916, does not prevent small oppressed nations within Europe from conducting wars against the imperialist powers or large-scale national movements within Eastern Europe. And finally, he says, okay, then you could say, well, you you know, the imperialists are really, really strong and to fight them, that war is hopeless. He says, look, a hopeless war is still a war and certain factors like revolution breaks out can turn a hopeless war into a very hopeful one. Thinking back to the comment on the MHI site that you, you quoted earlier in the episode where the person said something like, I thought this bullshit was settled 100 years ago or something. I don't quite understand, like, in the, in the light of 20th century history, when we had all these wars of independence against imperialism, all these national liberation movements, I mean, the whole continent of Africa experienced anti-colonial revolts. All, all the countries of Europe lost their political control over their colonies. I don't understand that someone could still think that this was like a an argument that you could uh, stand by. Do you have any context for I don't under I don't quite understand the position of people saying this is impossible to have uh, an anti-imperialist you know national liberation movement in the context of like recent or some you know the past hundred years of anti-imperialist history I but maybe I just don't don't know something about the kind of arguments they make right I mean what you're you're getting is something that's supposedly based on Luxembourg but Luxembourg did not have this kind of like ultra leftist immediate shot out of the pistol view of the the struggle for socialism that just rejected democratic struggles struggles for rights struggles for national self-determination she didn't approve of that but in general I mean she 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 didn't have like this ultra left opposition to reforms even though of course you know she was opposed to reformism or reformism but I think today like the person who made that kind of comment oh national self-determination is is impossible under capitalism because no state can deliver freedom I, I think it's that kind of ultra left reasoning that's really driving that today you're absolutely right. Given the whole history of the 20th century, and particularly the 1950s, late 40s, you know, into the 60s, where country after country and continent after continent is gaining 
political independence, you, you can't say this is unachievable. It's just, it's just not possible. So what you get is this moving of the goalposts. Yeah, okay. So you're no longer talking about can a nation achieve political independence, its own separate state, if it wishes, which is all we're talking about. We're not saying that they should, that they must, none of that. But if that, if people consider themselves to constitute a people and they want a separate state of their own, that's a right that has to be recognized. That that's all. That's all we're saying. So that's been one again and again. But you move the goalposts and you set up a straw man as if we're trying to say that, you know, full freedom can be achieved within the confines of a capitalist nation state, not to mention in the context of imperialism. You set up that straw man and you knock it down. But this is this is why just like Lenin, you know, had to like get really precise and say what we are talking about is political independence, the right to exist as a separate state. That's what we're talking about here. And somebody wants to argue that that's like completely irrelevant, that nothing short of a shot out of the pistol struggle for full communism here now matters. Let, let them make the argument and, and we can argue that you ain't going to get to it that way, getting to freedom by opposing ac- any actual movement for freedom. So I think the ground of the reasoning is, 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 is like different than the, the kind of stuff that the Junius was employing after the history of, of the 20th century. I think you're, you're quite right. You can't just say, oh, this is impossible. You have to either say this isn't full communism. Yeah, we know that. Or, you see, or, or there's the, the, the proxy war argument. Let me just say one more thing about what Lenin said in, in response to, to Junius. I mean, he was saying, look, this, this is not just like, you know, some theoretical error. It's got really harmful political effects. It's reactionary, he said, to be like indifferent in this manner to national liberation struggles. And when you're saying this from one of the big countries in, in Europe, it's national chauvinism. And he says, national wars against imperialist powers are inevitable. He said they're progressive. He says they're revolutionary. And then he cautioned, that doesn't mean they're going to succeed. Certain conditions have got to be present for them to succeed. Huge support in the oppressed countries is one thing he mentioned, and that's what we've seen in Ukraine. Particularly favorable conjuncture of international conditions. We might be seeing that as well. Or the proletariat. Uh, rises up in one of the big powers. So those are the conditions that can turn, you know, a national liberation struggle from something that happens but gets crushed into one that succeeds. I think a, a number of things that Lenin is saying there are, are, are important. One of them is there's a difference between national self-determination being impossible and it being difficult to achieve, you know, in practice. If it were strictly speaking impossible, that would be it, okay? The concrete conditions that you face, that that wouldn't matter at all. But if it's instead national self-determination is something difficult to achieve, but not strictly speaking impossible, then those concrete conditions matter and they can change. You know, what wasn't possible can become possible. And so your thinking goes in an entirely different direction from some blanket, this is possible, this is impossible, to saying, let's look at the contradictions that exist. How might we be able to make this happen? Especially in the context of the current war in Ukraine, it'd be one thing to say, you know, if Ukraine was already a 
colony of Russia or <clears throat> within, within the territorial borders of Russia, we want them to say, well, it's going to be really difficult to have a, a war of independence in this context. But it's another thing when it's already an independent country and it's being invaded by Russia. Like even the question of like how possible is it to resist the invasion is somewhat muted just because you don't have a lot of choice in the situation. You know, the people of Ukraine, they weren't saying to themselves, well, let's like calculate out to what extent is this like possible? It was like, well, our only choice is to defend ourselves because under no circumstances do we want to be subsumed by Russia. Yeah. So they didn't like try to calculate whether it's possible. They said, here's the situation we face. How do we make it possible? Yeah. We don't <laughs> it's have a, a life choice and death to fight. matter. How yeah. do we make this possible? Yeah. It's not like an abstract question yeah, yeah. of a possibility. Right. And... But I mean, I, I think that this, this kind of point is really Im- important when you get these pronouncements like those of Chomsky. You know, it, it, it can't happen, right? Nobody knows the future and conditions can change and assessments, even of real experts can be wrong. And another thing I think that was really helpful was Lenin's discussion of the American War of Independence, and it really helps to combat the kind of uh, campus imperialist economism that we confront today. The campus try to characterize all national liberation struggles against regimes that are enemies of the U.S., you know, Putin, Assad, as proxy wars that are actually being fought on behalf of the U.S. But Lenin says, you know, just because you get the involvement of another imperialist power in a conflict, you get France siding with the Americans against the British in the American War of Independence, that doesn't make it a proxy war. He didn't use that term, but he said, look, this was just auxiliary. Essentially, this was a national liberation struggle against British imperialism, even though the French themselves were imperialist, as he said. Right. And that's why on the 4th of July, we all sing the Marseillaise and wave the French flag here in the United States. And eat freedom fries. Yeah. <laughs> and we all remember the good old days when we helped the French screw over King George. Um. You know, okay, so the, the, the involvement of the French in the American War of Independence was kind of incidental when it says it was auxiliary. Now, that's not the case that we have in Ukraine today. U.S. involvement is not auxiliary. But there's something that Lenin says in 1916 in his uh, response to Piatikov writing as uh, Kievsky. The pamphlet was called A Caricature of Marxism and Imperialist Economism. So it was this long article he wrote against Piatikov. There, among other things, Lenin deals with a case where the role of imperialism is not so incidental as it was in the American War of Independence. I think that's really instructive for understanding how to relate to the Ukrainian struggle today. So what Lenin says is, yeah, small states can be drawn into the struggles between the great powers. But he said also there's this counter movement, quote, the violation of democracy with regard to small nations, much weaker than their imperialist patrons, leads either to revolt, Ireland, or to defection of whole regiments to the enemy, the Czechs. Okay, now what's this reference to the Czechs? Uh, he, he didn't say, but I mean, what was going on in 1916? What he characterized as defection of whole regiments to the enemy was that, okay, the Czech lands were controlled by the, Austro, the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, Austria-Hungary was one of the central powers in World War I. 
you know, that group of uh, imperialist countries. And they were fighting in opposition to the allied powers. And the movement for Czech independence, uh, headed by Masaryk, took the side of the allied powers, you know, against Austro-Hungary, against the central powers. And Lenin said, okay, faced with this situation where you've got this defection to the enemy, it's not only achievable from the view of finance capital, but sometimes even profitable for their imperialist policy, for their imperialist war, to allow individual small nations like the Czechs, I, I said that, he, didn't, he just said individual small nations, as much democratic freedom as they can, right down to a political independence, so as not to risk damaging their own military operations. So it, basically he was saying that Austro-Hungary might recognize that it's in its own self-interest to grant Czech independence in this case in order to head off or forestall or, or, or stop this defection to the other side in the World War. And basically, there are all sorts of different ways these things can play out. Yeah. That's like the more abstract way of putting it. Yeah. And we can't just be absolute in saying that things are impossible. No. But this particular case, you think think is relevant to Ukraine today. Oh, it's definitely relevant to, 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 to Ukraine. I mean, how how is Ukraine achieving national self-determination? It, it, it's defecting to the enemy. It's receiving arms. It's receiving military, uh, intelligence uh, from, from the enemy, Russia's enemy, f from the U.S., and, and, and so forth. So Ukrainian national self-determination is obviously achievable. Uh, I'm not saying that, the, you know, there might not be a world war. There might be. I'm not saying there might not be a terminal war. There might be. But things look a lot different, let's say, than, than, than they did back at the start of March. So Ukrainian self, national self-determination is, is clearly achievable right now. The problem for campists is it's not achievable on terms that the campus can stomach. And, and that's the long and short of it. Okay, for them, everything's got to be subordinated to the struggle against the so-called imperialist camp. But if they want to make themselves into inheritors of Leninism, they got a hard road to, to hoe because clearly Lenin had a different attitude. He didn't make an exception to the right of national self-determination and oppose the Czechs' right to national self-determination on the grounds that they were collaborating with the imperialist power. Uh, he didn't argue that the Czechs were mere pawns fighting a proxy war on behalf of the Allied powers instead of in their own interests. He didn't say that the Czech movement wasn't a real national liberation movement because it took the side of the Allied powers. He said that by defecting to the enemy, the Czechs might force Austria-Hungary Austria to grant them independence in its own self-interest. That's not what happened, but they, they did get independence because that side in the Austro-Hungary, the empire collapsed, that side lost in the, in the World War. You know, in addition to the particular problems with this and that argument against national self-determination, against uh, the idea that it's possible or achievable, I, I think that there's been a really serious methodological error. Uh, in particular, it's an error made by people on the ultra-left. They make it in general. They make it in the case of uh, national self-determination. And it, it, the, the error is to employ the axiomatic method in a case where it's just not applicable. So, like, let's take Piatikov said, national self-determination is impossible under imperialism. So, 
the idea is you, you take a premise like that. National self-determination is impossible under imperialism. The mistake, the methodological error, is to treat this as an axiom. That's the axiomatic method. In other words, you take it for granted. You say it absolutely must be true in every case. It can't be called into question. No facts can ever refute it. And then when you treat it as an axiom, you can supposedly make, you know, a logical deduction and gain additional knowledge, you know, just by sitting in your armchair, since no nation can achieve national self-determination, a nation that tries to achieve national self-determination, they're going to fail. In other words, to put it in the form of a syllogism, all struggles for national self-determination in the epoch of imperialism are unachievable. Ah, the Ukrainians, they're struggling for national self-determination in the epoch of imperialism. Therefore, the Ukrainian struggle for national self-determination is unachievable. That's the way a lot of these people reason. Hegel just, like, lost it over this kind of syllogism. Uh, he called it the syllogism of allness, and he called it a mere delusion to think that it's a proper syllogism, that it's a proper deduction. If you're interested, look up syllogism of allness or syllogism of reflection, either in the, the science of logic or the smaller logic. He used the example, all men are mortal. Now, Gaius is a man. We would say Socrates. He says, Gaius, all men are mortal. Gaius is a man. Therefore, Gaius is mortal. What's wrong with that? Here's, here's what Hegel said. I'm quoting Hegel. The major premise, all men are mortal, is correct only because and insofar as the conclusion, Gaius is mortal, is correct. If Gaius should chance to be not mortal, the major premise would not be correct. The proposition which was supposed to be the conclusion, Gaius is mortal, must already be immediately, immediately correct on its own account. Because otherwise, the major premise, all men are mortal, could not embrace all individuals. Before the major premise can pass as correct, there's a prior question. Whether the conclusion as to whether Gaius is or isn't mortal, there's a prior question whether that conclusion itself might not be an instance against it, an instance against the premise that all men are mortal. You know, it can seem that he's being really nitpicky because, hey, you know, we know that everybody's mortal. But that's exactly the point. We know everybody's mortal because Homo sapiens have been around for, I don't know, 300,000 years, and every single one's been mortal. That's how we know it, not by means of deduction. Gaius is mortal. Tom, Dick, and Harry are mortal. Joe Blow is mortal. It's these facts, this generalization from actual experience that allows us to formulate all men are mortal. Not the reverse. We, you don't start with all men are mortal, and then you're not able to then deduce Gaius is mortal, Tom is mortal, Dick is mortal, Harry's mortal, Joe Blow's mortal. It's not like that. It, it's, it's the opposite. You know, and like, like Hegel said, the premise that all men are mortal can be true only if Gaius happens to be mortal, and that's always, you know, always an if. Uh, if he isn't mortal then that immediately disproves the premise that all men are mortal. And so if you've got a case like that, surely when you've got a case like all struggles for national self-determination are unachievable, it's certainly an instance of that. It's not an axiom that can be taken for granted as being 100% secure.
if the Ukrainians kick the asses of the imperialist invaders, the premise that national self-determination is impossible under imperialism, that's immediately disproven, just like if, if Gaius were to live forever. The facts determine whether the premise is true or false. The premise does not determine what the facts have to be. And the only difference between these two cases is we've got the experience of hundreds of thousands of years of Homo sapiens. Uh, and it's this long, long record of facts that allows us to be really, really confident that all men are mortal. But we got really little experience compared to that with imperialism, capitalism, national self-determination. So it's completely wrong to pretend that any premise is an axiom that just has to be true rather than a hypothesis. And so claims that this or that is impossible, unachievable, are just not, just they're just not warranted. It's a good point to make at the end here. Obviously, it's applicable to situations beyond just understanding the war in Ukraine today or understanding imperialism, but this sort of use of syllogisms, this sort of axiomatic deduction is used a lot by ultra-left people to throw shade at all sorts of things. Yeah, and you can do it at home in your spare time, <laughs> <laughs> sitting in your armchair, solve every question. Yeah. And uh, not be engaged in the real world at all. Yeah, I mean, not only like the, the ultra-left, I don't know if you would call platypus ultra-left or... Maybe. Reactionary right, I don't it's know. Hor it's horseshoe <laughs> theory time uh, with yeah, that. fascists, Marxists, but, I don't know but, but, yeah, they, but, but, but there's a lot of that kind of stuff in, in, in the way they think. To... Yeah, for sure. The left is dead. I am the left. I am dead. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast please do stop by marxisthumanistinitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 